I'm good. <laughs> Thank you. So, <clears throat> what is the worst part of a vacation? Now, this question shouldn't take much thought. Is it the bubble baths? Is it the beautifully scented candles? You don't have to worry about the smell of your beastly, sweaty husband. Is it the hotel rooms and the food and the room service? Or maybe it's the entertainment. Is it the relaxing time on the beach, surrounded by an ocean, not a city in sight? Your only worry in the world is, is this tide going to reach my chair? What is the worst part of a vacation? Is it the smell of pine trees, the crisp air, the tents, the hiking, the campfires, the views, and of course the s'mores? What is the worst part of a vacation? It's absolutely none of those things. Those things are the essence of a vacation. No school, no work, no responsibility. The blue sky breeze blowing wind through your hair. You know, I wish that I could put the world away for a long minute and pretend that I don't live in it. A permanent vacation. Don't we all wish that vacation was something that never ended? So what is the worst part of a vacation? I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you. It's blowing out your beautifully scented candles and coming back to your stenchful husband. I'm sure he'll put you out with his aroma, but it won't be as relaxing as your candles. It's putting down the fishing rod, lacing up your boots, and picking up your hammer. It's putting down the sand shovels, your gaming controls, and picking up your pencils and books. It's leaving those pleasurable things behind. And that's not to say that our daily lives can't be pleasurable, but our daily lives, in most cases, just don't contain our favorite activities in our favorite places. You see, the worst part of a vacation is coming home. Back to school, back to work, and back to reality. And I believe that that is how Peter, James, and John felt in Mark chapter 9, if you would like to follow along. As they descended down the mountain, immediately after they experienced something they had no idea was going to happen. It was as if they were coming back from their own vacation. You see, they experienced Jesus transfigured into the full, trans transcendent, resurrected glory of God. And they experienced it firsthand. The full power of God upon His Son. His glory beyond the cross. In verse 1, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And with power it came. Peter, James, and John experienced the kingdom of God on this earth right before their eyes. And Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Now that must have been a pretty cool sight. And it's interesting that up until this point, Jesus wants to keep his identity a secret. 
a secret to, the, to his disciples and a secret to the masses. Repeatedly, he charges the, his disciples not to speak of who he is. And again, after Peter, James, and John experience his full glory, he charges them not to speak of what they have witnessed. As a newly reigning king, isn't attention, publicity, fame, aren't those the object of your mission? You want to be known, and you want your power to be known. And can you imagine how hard it must have been for those three to keep their mouths sealed about the most glorious thing they've probably ever seen? I, for one, as a good millennial, would be posting it on social media and telling my friends about it. You wouldn't believe what just happened to me. It was insane. Well, luckily, there wasn't such a thing as social media, or media for that matter, back in Jesus' day. His identity would have been disclosed in half a second. But Jesus was not on a quest for recognition. And for a, signif for a significant reason, the Israelites and all who lived in his day had a misunderstanding of the coming Messiah. They awaited a Messiah who would come and reign with violence, decimating his enemies. Does that sound familiar to you? But that is not who Jesus is. And until they understood that he was not the militaristic king that they awaited, he, kept, he keeps his identity confidential. You see, the apostles knew who he was, yet there was still question. Well, believe you me, after that experience, those three certainly had no question of who he is. Jesus is surely the Son of God reigning on this earth with God's power. Now, I think about this and I think, wouldn't that just be the hardest thing to rebound from? Even harder than coming back home from a vacation. What I mean is this. Who would want to come down from that mountain after they experienced Jesus in his full glory? Kind of like how many of us don't want to come back from our vacations. And Peter, out of fear, even offers to build tents. One for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for Jesus. He does not want to leave that mountain. He says, yeah, why don't we just camp out with Elijah and Moses and, and Jesus? You know, hang out with the three most illustrious men in the Bible. You could sign me up for that one. But he had a point. Who would want to leave such a place? However, as all vacations come to an end, theirs was over. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. It was time to descend the mountain because there was work to be done. And they didn't have any time to recuperate. I think it's funny how after a vacation, we usually need time to recover from that vacation. Now, I understand that some vacations can be tiring, but man, don't we just contradict ourselves sometimes. It's kind of like saying, I relaxed way too much. I think I need to relax some more. Answer me this. How can we relax from relaxations? You see, 
we humans can be a walking paradox. But that is the mystery that is satisfied by Christ. So let's read about it, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately... It convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing the boy, It came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So let's backtrack to verse 15. It says that immediately... They are greeted by the great crowd. You see, they don't have the luxury that some of us do. They don't have time to recuperate from their time off. As soon as they descend the mountain, it's time to get busy. And they are met with a quarrel amongst this great crowd. Specifically, they are met with a father who has an epileptic son. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And essentially, the spirit makes his son go out of his mind. And the father says, your disciples, disciples were not able to cast the spirit out. So what does Jesus do? Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? He deems his disciples and the great crowd that's surrounding him a faithless generation. Now take attention to the lack of faith that is seen here, both in the, in the disciples and in the crowd. And so Jesus commands them to bring the boy to him. It is at this point that I believe that many of us in here can relate to the boy. Not in the sense that he is out of his mind, although sometimes we can be out of our minds, but immediately 
As the boy is brought close to Jesus, he is attacked by the Spirit, and he's thrown to the ground, and he begins to foam at the mouth. Now think about the timing of the attack. Have you ever experienced a similar attack on your faith in such proximity to Jesus? You're putting in all the effort you can. You think you're so close, but then something happens, and you just can't get to that solid place of faith that you used to be in. You can't feel Jesus in your life any longer. Your passion and your zeal is waning. It's as if God has gone silent in your life. You see nothing but darkness. I believe that the closer we come to to Jesus, the harder our lives seem to get. But those cold and dark experiences that we have are necessary for the maturing of our faith. So nevertheless, the boy is brought to Jesus. And I think what happens next is is, is pretty funny. When I read this story, I marked the amount of times that the word immediately appeared in this text. It's three times, which should catch our attention. And at this point, we have already seen the word twice. Once, as soon as they reached the bottom of the mountain, they were immediately met by the crowd. And a second time, when the boy was immediately attacked by the Spirit, upon coming close to Jesus. But, get this, ironically enough, this is not one of those times. You would think that in the high point of this story, the climax of this story, you would find the highest level of urgency. But it's surprising because Jesus doesn't have that sense of urgency that is found in everyone else around him. And he is not as worked up as the disciples or the crowd or the father or the epileptic son. In retrospect, they come down from the mountain. They find everybody is arguing. The father is clearly troubled about his son. And there's a convulsing boy on the ground directly in front of Jesus. Now just think about how chaotic this scene is. But Jesus is calm. And you could tell by what he he does next. And the way the story has been going, there should be this expectation that Jesus should react immediately to use Mark's language, you know, after the boy convulsed. But instead, what does he do? Jesus asks a question, and it couldn't be a more perfectly timed, ironic question. He asks, how long has this been happening to him? I can only imagine what the father was thinking. Are you kidding me? You're asking questions and questions about time? When time is the most important thing, you see, Jesus is pretty witty. But the father answers his question anyway. He says, it's been happening from childhood and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Okay, so let's remember who is a part of the scene at this point in time. We have the disciples who failed to cast out the Spirit, we have a faithless crowd, we have a boy who is spiritually and physically seized, and now we have a father whose faith seems to be waning. He says, if you can. A faithless generation indeed. The lack of faith in this story comes to a tipping point. And what does Jesus do? First, he mockingly repeats the Father. He says, if you can. And then we get Jesus' declaration of faith. 
He says, all things are possible for one who believes. And now we come across the third immediately of this story. Immediately, in response to Jesus' declaration of faith, the father cried out, and some translations add, with tears. He cried out with tears, I believe. Help my unbelief. He comes to a realization that given his unfortunate circumstances, he still has to choose to believe. He understands that faith is a choice. He believes not on the basis of his emotion, but on the basis of his understanding. And Jesus affirms the Father's, decl- the Father's declaration of faith by doing what his faithless disciples in the midst of a faithless crowd couldn't do. That is, he casts the spirit from his boy. You think the disciples learned something about faith from the Father? You think the crowd, the faithless generation, learned something about faith? Yeah, they did. And here's what I think they learned. I think they learned that our faith is not defined by our experiences, the condition that we find ourselves in. Our faith is learned and affirmed through those experiences. And in the midst of darkness, as we saw through the Father's experience, when we make a declaration of faith, Jesus affirms it. St. John of the Cross says, the endurance of darkness is the preparation for great light. The endurance of darkness is preparation for great light. When God goes silent in your life, when darkness enters your soul, never fail to trust in His veiled presence. Because silence does not equate to absence. Earlier I told you that we humans can be a walking paradox. And I asked you, how can we relax from relaxation? Now, in the same way, how can we believe when unbelief is ingrained in us? That is the mystery that is satisfied by Christ. Because despite our circumstances... Despite our physical condition, we have reason and understanding to believe. We have the ability to say, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I've heard it said before, God, if you could just be in this place. If you could just be with me. And you know what he says? Jesus says, if I am here and I've been here since the beginning, just believe. So what defines your faith? Your dark, cold experiences? Or the goodness that is dwelt within you? When I feel as if I am bound in darkness and my belief is waning, I say this prayer. In darkness, I lost myself, but found you. In silence, I lost myself, but found you. In numbness, I lost myself, but found you. In confusion, in chaos, in shame, I lost myself, but found you. All the while, you were with me, and now you are with me. I believe. Help my unbelief. Dr. Martin Luther King said, 
to see the stars, it has to be dark. You see, our faith is found, learned, and received in the lowliest places of our lives. Trapped by unbelief, the Father found his faith. May we find our faith. Let's stand and sing.